open our Bibles together now to Romans chapter 1. Even when we're taking a break from the book of Romans, we end up in Romans. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be basing our time together this morning, starting in verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift. And we humble ourselves before you, our God, who has revealed yourself to us purely in your word. We, we pray, Lord, by your spirits working through your word that you would transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray boldly even that those who are here this morning that don't know you, those who are dead in sin, would be called to life in your mercy and in your grace this morning by your spirit, through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we do again pray for our brothers, faithful men all across Canada right now who are preaching boldly your word under threat of imprisonment. We pray that you would strengthen them, put steel in their spine, that your word would echo prophetically through that land and bring it to repentance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Canada last week, as we said this morning, it was on Saturday last week, passed a bill outlawing all of what they call conversion therapy. The, bill, the language of the bill itself says that God's design 
of men and women and sexuality is, to use the Bill's word, a myth. It is punishable by law to call a sexual sinner, particularly a same-sex sexual sinner, to repentance. You could spend five years in prison for doing so. And so this Sunday, faithful pastors all across Canada are preaching on God's design for marriage and sexuality, particularly as it relates to the sin of homosexuality. They are doing so illegally. They are doing so under the threat of imprisonment. They're declaring to the state that Jesus Christ alone is the one who defines what marriage and sexuality are all about and that Christ alone will determine what is preached from his pulpits. The state has no jurisdiction over Christ's pulpit. And so this morning, pastors all across America have been called to stand in solidarity with our Canadian brothers and preach on the same topic because the truth is we're, we're not far behind them. The screws are already tightening. It's coming for us. It's coming soon. And so we're doing that this morning. We're standing with our Canadian brothers. We are proclaiming, though, to our nation that Jesus Christ is the Lord of his church. We, we, we say this right now to our nation. Christ is the Lord of the church, not you. So we're doing this little three-part mini-series on God's good design. Last week we looked at God's good design of us as male and female, equal in value and dignity and worth, but different, with different roles, designed differently. This week, God's good design for sexuality, but particularly as this issue has come to the forefront in the laws in Canada and has been pushed to the forefront in these United States for a long time, particularly focusing on the specific aspect of same-sex sexuality. Next week, then, God's good design in the sanctity of life. And we, we have not and will not shy away from controversy on this. These have been politicized issues, and we will continue to stand firm on the Word of God and say we will not bow our knee to you calling this politics that we're not allowed to talk about. Because God talks about it in His Word. We'll stand on the authority of the Word of God. And does the world find this message offensive? The answer is a resounding yes, of course it does. That's why it's illegal in Canada. That's why it's headed that way here. The truth of God's word is deeply offensive to sinful men. But the point of God giving us his word, especially a passage like this, God, God didn't give us this passage to give us a gentle back rub and tell us we're basically good people. Just keep going with all your impulses, they'll save you. No, it's to expose our sin that we might repent, that we might turn from it. In other words, be converted. So when a law is made against conversion therapy, and God's will for us is that we might be converted, the kingdom of God has come into sharp conflict with the kingdom of men. And the kingdom of men must bow its knee. There's only one acceptable response to the commands of God, repentance and obedience. That's all. It's what God calls us to, and we will not stop from calling ourselves to that as well. Sinners will never embrace the gospel unless they see and feel their great need for saving. Unless they know that they need to be saved from something. And so even though they hate the message, even though they are offended by it, we must preach the true gospel. All of the gospel. 
We must call people to repentance even if it becomes illegal because it is the message that saves. One pastor said, we can't preach Christ without preaching repentance. We can't preach repentance without calling sin, sin. There's no polite way into the kingdom. So true. And so the topic of the wrath of God is essential to authentic evangelism. There is no such thing as true evangelism where the wrath of God is a topic that we will avoid and won't talk about and are ashamed of. If, if we reject or if we ignore the idea of God's wrath, then we can never understand God's salvation. In fact, what we're doing is preaching a false gospel that does not have the power to save. It damns. It locks people out of salvation because no one will ever, ever be saved unless they know that they're lost. So it's in love that we preach this message. What does Paul say here? It's a giant chunk. We're going to take it in big pieces here. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If we're going to address this topic, this topic that the world tells us we are not allowed to address, this topic that, that the world tells us we must just affirm everyone on, we cannot understand it apart from the wrath of God. We must talk about the wrath of God or we will not understand this topic correctly. This wrath that Paul talks about, look at verse 18. The wrath of who? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is not the wrath of man. This is the wrath of Almighty God, the wrath of a holy God, which means it's not like man's wrath. Man's wrath is, is flawed and faulty and full of pride and vengeance. Not so with God. His wrath is just, it's pure, it's righteous. The Bible speaks more of the wrath of God than it does the love of God. So imagine how much we're ignoring if we refuse to talk about it. Because God is holy, he hates sin. He is not casual about it. He hates sin. And hear this, he is personally angry with sinners. A death sentence is on them. His very nature is hostile towards sin and towards sinners. John Murray says God has a holy revulsion against that which is the contraction of his holiness. In other words, God is holy and anything that comes against that, God hates it. There's this popular statement, no, 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 I thought God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Doesn't it say that in the Bible somewhere? The answer is no, Gandhi made that statement up. He's not a good one to go to on spiritual matters, by the way. What do, what do we see in Scripture? What does God say in his word? Psalm 5, verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In other words, Scripture teaches God hates sin and hates the sinner. That's scary. Psalm chapter 7, verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. 
You have appointed a judgment. In verse 12, it says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now, God's not just angry with sinners. This, this psalm tells us God is prepared to make war against them. He is at war with them. He is utterly going to destroy them. He's preparing to wet his sword. He's, he's already bent and pulled his bow back to fire fiery arrows at them. As Spurgeon says, God never misses the mark either. That's scary. Well, friends, people must be saved from the wrath of God. People must be saved from the wrath of God. This is not a popular notion. Of course it's not. It's offensive. It's mocked. It's hated but we have to preach the wrath of God because it's real. It exists. And we shouldn't be ashamed of the wrath of God because it's good. There's nothing about God that isn't good. There's nothing about God that isn't righteous and true and just. If God wasn't filled with wrath towards sin and towards sinners, he would not be righteous. He could not be holy. God's holiness demands that he hates sin. His holiness demands that he judge sin. And Paul says it's because God has actually put the knowledge of himself inside of all men. Sin isn't just I meant to do right and I ended up kind of messing up. No, no, no. God's put the knowledge of himself in all men. It's been made plain. It's clearly perceived. In other words, we cannot miss it. There's not a single person who has ever lived who can miss this truth. There is a God and I am accountable to him. So the rejection of God and his creation is foolishness. It is, it is not an, a whoopsie. It is high-handed rebellion. Everyone sees. Everyone understands. So, Paul says, all are without excuse. And when sinful, arrogant man closes his eyes to the truth of God, that God has made plain to him, when he rejects the God of creation, when he suppresses his own conscience, God in turn rejects man, and he hands people over to their own sin and to its consequences. Douglas Moose says, like a judge hands over a prisoner to the punishment of the crime he's earned, God's hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever increasing sin. That's what we see Paul presenting here. This horrible downward spiral of deeper and deeper and deeper depravity for those who reject God. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So sinners refuse to honor, refuse to glorify God and instead live for their own glory, for, for their glory. This, this is a willful act. This is a treasonous rebellion and idolatry that, that, that sinful man lives in because man does not want to be accountable to anyone. We do not want to bow our knee to a God who calls all the shots. We want to call all the shots. 
Sinful men and women do not want to bow their knee. This leads, Paul says, to their becoming futile in their thinking. In other words, they become insane. That's our world, isn't it? Insane. Irrational. Why is it impossible to have a rational conversation with someone that disagrees with you about any topic in the whole world? Because we've gone insane. We're not even capable of it because people's minds have been subjected to futility. So we can't even talk to each other anymore. We can't, can't even engage with one another. He says their foolish hearts were darkened like blowing out a candle, left in utter darkness. You can't see your way out. You can't feel your way out. The truth is they're not trying to find their way out. They're not trying to find their way to the light. As Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The thinking has become so twisted in this downward spiral that there are no limits to where they will go. And so Paul says, although they are complete idiots, although they are total fools, they think they are brilliant. Oh, that's people. That's people. That's what we're like when we won't bow our knee to the Lord. But any person who doesn't glorify the true God, the God who has revealed himself to all men, is a fool, even though he may think that he is wise. And fools do foolish things. What does that great theologian Forrest Gump say? Stupid is as stupid does. Man, that's us. That's the world we live in. Fools act foolishly. Those who reject God are given over by God to be controlled by their own depraved minds, claiming to be wise, claiming to be evolved, claiming to be so much better than those backwards people that came before us, you know, our grandparents. These God-rejecting people have made themselves imbeciles. Sin makes you stupid. So stupid that you don't know how stupid you are. So when you look at the world around you and we go, how is this even happening? Sin's the answer. Rebellion's the answer. Not only does... Man's rejection of God make him a fool. His depraved mind causes him to then to, to act on that. To do shameful things. Things that make him unclean. Things that are full of moral filth. Paul goes on, verse 24. Therefore God has given them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. People glory in their wickedness as though it was true freedom. They revel in their stupidity as if this is what life really looks like at its very best. It's the total opposite of freedom. It's judgment. When people do whatever they want to do, that is not freedom, that is judgment. God has handed them over to their sin. It's as if he puts them in a prison of their own moral filth. 
And in their blindness and foolishness, they, they can't get out. They don't even want to get out. Paul says, God gave them up. Consider how scary that expression is. God gave them up. Not the devil. Not demons. God gave them up. This, this Greek word, gave them up, it, 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 d- delivered over. It means to be, to be handed over to judgment. To be handed over for your judgment to be carried out against you. To be handed off for your death sentence to be carried out. Paul says that's what God did. This is God's wrath. Letting people do whatever they want to do. That's the wrath of God. Steve Lawson says of this condition of men, it's just as if God had decided to flush the toilet. You want to reject me? Here, I'll help you. I'll put some wind in your sails. It's only level one. It's only level one of the rejection of God. It's only level one of God giving them over. Verse 26, he goes on, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For what reason? Because of their rebellion against him and because he had given them up because of their rebellion, God hands them over to their own dishonorable passions. Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's the second time Paul says it now. God gave them up. They are in the death spiral. What did God give them up to? God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The Greek word is atemia. Shameful things. Defiling things. Passions which by their very nature defile a person. There there are natural passions that we've been created with. They're, They're in keeping with how God has made us. Natural passions, even natural sinful passions that are in keeping with how God made us, in keeping with our nature. In other words, it is it is not automatically sinful for a man to desire a woman. That's not automatically a sin. It's a natural, that's how people end up married. It's that natural desire that God has, has placed in us. We are made that way. But even when it crosses the line into sin, it is still a natural desire for a man to desire a woman. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul here is talking about that there are some things that the desire itself is sin. It's not just a matter of whether I act on it or not. The very desire is sinful. It is a defiling thing. These desires, by their very nature, defile us. They make us unclean. They are shameful. They are sinful. And God hands some people over to the control of these kind of dishonorable shameful passions, desires. Paul says the evidence that this is true is homosexual lust. Same-sex attraction. Homosexuality. This is the evidence that God has done this, Paul says. Women and men handed over by God himself to powerful, unnatural, shameful, defiling passions rejecting God's natural order, consumed with passion for one another. 
Friends, the church has been bad on this topic for a long time. Many Christians are afraid to talk about it because the church has been somewhat abusive in its treatment of people, in the language that it has used. The church is also really bad on this because we don't believe Paul's words here that the desire itself is defiling, is shameful. We think it's just what we do with our hands. So go ahead, have the desire. Go ahead, identify yourself as a Christian homosexual, just don't act on it. Friends, that's not what Paul says. It's not what he says here, and it's not what he says elsewhere. We've said this sin in our nation, and our nation's, our nation's pushing it. What's going on in Canada, the way things have been going here, this is going to lead to the judgment of God. No, that's not what Paul says. He says this is the judgment of God. This is God's judgment on us for our wickedness. It doesn't lead to it. It is it. It is the judgment of God. Our culture, which is so infatuated with this particular sin. Those of you that this is your church home, you know we don't preach on this every week. We preach whatever the text says as we go verse by verse through the Bible. But people want to say to us, don't talk about that. Don't single an issue out like that. Number one, it's what Paul does here. Number two, it's what our culture has done. And if we won't talk about it, we are being unfaithful and disobedient. Our culture is infatuated with this particular sin. It is falling all over itself to celebrate homosexuality. And that's not going to bring the judgment of God on us. It is clear evidence that the judgment of God is on us. What does Paul mean when he says they're receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error? He's not talking about some kind of disease that you're likely to get. He's saying their error is rejecting God, suppressing the truth of God, and their penalty is this judgment from God. The, the penalty, the judgment, is this desire, this homosexual desire, this infatuation with this whole thing is the penalty, is the judgment. These defiling passions are judgment. From God. It's like the prison door has been locked and the key has been thrown away. Paul says, You want to know how far people will go? This is how far they'll go. See, we're supposed to we're supposed to be repulsed when Paul brings this topic up. This isn't a fit topic for us to talk about, is it? And yet it's everywhere we turn. It's in our children's shows, it's in our children's schools. It's on every piece of media we might think to, to consume. It's in the public buildings we drive past with their full-size flags hanging. It's the judgment of God. But notice what Paul says. Paul roots his statements in nature, in creation itself. This is an utter rebellion against God's created order. It's why not very many years ago when this topic was brought up, most Christians had a gut reaction to it, and even non-Christians had a gut reaction to it, a gag reflex, if you will, that kind of went, ooh. And we don't have that anymore because we're so inundated with it. We're used to it. And we even think that instinct on our part is a sign of something really wrong with us. Oh, no, friends, it's, 
It's part of creation. It's because this is a high-handed rebellion against God's created order. And our culture is all in on this rebellion. It's not an accident that the buzzword is what? Pride. Oh, that's no accident. This is rebellion against God of the highest order. Just, just reading this passage we read this morning, and certainly my comments on it, just saying what God says through Paul will make you a bigot, will make you a homophobe, will get you mocked, will get you called the most vile kind of hateful things. It will land you in published lists of hate groups. In Canada, it can now land you in jail. This is not by accident. This is quite intentional. It is quite by design. There's actually a book that was published in the late 1980s called After the Ball by two uh, professors from Harvard University. And it lays out a three-step plan for this takeover that we've watched happen. First step is desensitization. We desensitized people by getting it out there all the time. And these guys in the book actually said, in a TV show, just have a gay character. Make him the butt of the jokes. It doesn't matter. Let people laugh. And the more they laugh, the more used to it they'll be. And then we finally move to somebody who's not the butt of jokes anymore. He's just one of the characters. He just happens to be like this. It's, it, it, their plan was, and it's in writing in the book, Get it out there as much as you can so people get used to it. So that built-in gag reflex disappears. We're just used to it. Right? It's like if you didn't grow up on a farm and you go watch a calf being born, you're probably going to be grossed out. The farmer's like, what, man? I see this every day. That's exactly the plan. Get it out there. It's worked. Second is called jamming. Why, when the riots started happening... In the last year and a half, two years, with the Black Lives Matter movement, was it always tied to the rainbow flag and the trans movement? Because two professors wrote a book in the 1980s, and their second strategy was called jamming, and they explicitly said, tie this to race so that you're a bigot if you disagree. We don't just think you're wrong, and we don't just think you're old-fashioned. We say to you, you are a hateful bigot, and that's the world we live in right now. You will not see the issue of ethnicity addressed apart from this issue, not anymore, because that was the plan. It's called jamming. You jam them up. Before they can ever say word one about this being sinful, we're going to make sure everybody thinks they're a Nazi if they do it, and that's going to be enough to... Do you want to be called a bigot? I, I don't, by the way. It's effective. It works. Their third step was just simply called this, conversion. Everybody's in. We've won them all over. That's the world we live in right now. Even churches have been so affected by this that that. They refuse to teach what Paul says here. They may hold to a biblical view on this issue, but they will not talk about it. They won't do what we're doing this morning. Because it's kind of scary. It's kind of a scary thing to do. And we've been won over to thinking we, we shouldn't even do it. It's not the loving thing to do. 
So they try to explain these passages away, saying they're not the hate mongers that, that these other people are. Many churches just say we need to affirm all people just as they are. After all, love is love. We ought to just affirm that. But friends, if we love people, we have to tell them the truth. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This, by the way, they have labeled a clobber passage. That's the language they use. What it means is if you read from this passage, what you are doing is beating people with it, savagely abusing them. Again, it's, it's intentional language used to shut you down before you ever get started. Here's what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God? It means you're going to go to hell. This list of people, this list that God made and gave to us, will go to hell unless they turn. And when Paul uses that word homosexuality, that's actually a bad translation to just use one word because he uses two words. Arson coitus, which appears to be a word he made up. Man bed, and he stuck them together. Men who go to bed with other men. If you don't repent from that, you will go to hell. But the other word is not a word he made up. It's used elsewhere where in the, in the scriptures it is malakoi. It means soft. When Jesus talks about John the Baptist, he said, what were you going out there to, in the wilderness to look for, a man in soft clothes? This concept of a soft man is often translated effeminate. It's not just sinful to act on homosexual desires. It is sinful to have them. And it will send you to hell unless you repent. You must repent. The thing is, nobody plays these games with the other sins in this list. We take them deadly seriously. Paul says you're going to go to hell if you persist unrepentantly in these things. And you never hear people say, I'm a Christian and an idolater. Don't you shame me. Don't you use 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to clobber my idolatry. How dare you? That's how I define myself. It's hateful to say I can't be a Christian and a thief. I'm a Christian and a serial adulterer. I was born this way. I, I mean, I knew from a young age, the, all these women out here, targets for this guy. Don't judge me. We would never do that. We would never do that because it is absurd on its face. But that is exactly what people do with homosexual sin. But God says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We should take that deadly seriously. It should matter to us. How hateful would it be to affirm someone in something that would send them to eternal conscious torment in hell? How much would we have to hate a person to say, go for it, I'm so proud of you? What a wicked thing to do. What a hateful thing to do. Imagine you're, you're at the rim of the Grand Canyon and the person that you've traveled there with approaches the edge and he says, I'm going to jump because I know I can fly. And you say, listen, I don't think that's the best idea. 
I don't think that's God's best for you to leap off the edge of the Grand Canyon. And they, and they say to you, look, I was born this way. I have always known I could fly. If I know one thing about myself, I was made to fly. You would be evil if you patted them on the back and said, then jump, my friend. You would be criminally liable if you did that. Knowingly affirming someone on their way to their death. Well, friends, these desires themselves are the product of rebellion against God. They are the judgment of God. They are a mark of his judgment. Not the actions alone. The desires themselves are a mark of the judgment of God. They are shameful. They are unnatural. They are dishonorable. They are defiling. Is that offensive to you? These are the words God chose. Friends, shame is a gift. We spend all our time falling all over ourselves trying to figure out how to not make people feel ashamed because our culture tells us that's what we're supposed to do. Shame that leads to repentance is a sweet gift from the Lord. Are you involved in sin? You should be ashamed. It's a gift from God. It's this bald-faced lack of shame that is a mark of judgment. Shame is a gift from the Holy Spirit. These words are not accidental. God saw fit to publish them. They matter. They're the right words. It doesn't just stop there. It keeps getting worse. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Kids, if your parents elbowed you in the middle of that, when I said disobedient to parents, they shouldn't have elbowed you at that time. But it's true. That's what God says. Disobedient to parents, right in the middle of that list. This is the third time now Paul says God gave them up. God gave them up to further judgment. The spiral keeps going further and further and further. First the heart is wicked and then the body follows. And now the mind itself is thoroughly corrupted. A debased mind. A worthless, useless mind, incapable of logical thought on a moral, spiritual level. That is where we are living right now. Our culture cannot reason on moral and spiritual matters. All they can do is feel. All they can do is demand. All they can do is emote. And then Paul gives us this long, what's called a vice list, the longest list of sins in the Bible right here. A worthless mind leads to all manner of depravity, sin spreading like a cancer through the whole body. Now anything goes. People want to sin, and God puts wind in their sails to do it. People hate God, and he washes his hands of them. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, Paul says again, everyone knows this. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows there is a God. Everyone knows we are accountable to him. So too, those who engage in sin know they are rebelling. 
They know it. You don't have to convince them. They know it. People in general have some awareness of wrongdoing and that they deserve judgment. Man is fully aware that the wages of his sin is death, which means hell, but no matter, he persists in doing it anyway. He persists in doing what he wants to do, and Paul says he is doubly guilty because he not only does evil, he promotes and approves of other people doing evil as well. This is the whole pride movement. You don't have to be gay, but you have to be an ally. You must, or you're evil. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. You must pat people on the back and approve of their sin. Or there's something wrong with you. The, 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 the only sin in, in, in our world's eyes is to dare to call anything wicked. To dare to say anything that anyone wants to do might be a rebellion against God. That's the only sin our culture knows about. We, we, we can't call anything sin. We must approve of everything. The only sin that exists to our culture is the sin of judgmentalism. That's our world. That's the, that's the picture Paul paints of the world, and that is our world right now. We are not different than them. It's a perfect description of our world, of our culture, of, of what's going on in Canada right now, of what's going on in the United States right now, what's going on even in our communities, what's being taught to our kids. The pit is so dark, so deep, you could never climb your way out. Sinful man is locked in the dungeon of his sin, handed over by God to judgment, and demanding from that pit that we all approve, that we all approve of sin. And there is only one key. There's only one key to get out of that judgment. This is a bleak picture the Apostle Paul paints. Locked in a dungeon that you don't want out of, but the key's been thrown away anyway. But friends, there is a key. There's only one key. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good news. This is bad news. But it's just the first part of the gospel message, which is such good news. We cannot lift ourselves up from hell, but God has given us the gospel, which tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven, lived a sinless life where we rebel, died in the place of his people in order to lift us out of that pit. Listen to the words from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, when, when Scripture speaks to this issue, it doesn't speak with the pointed finger that says, those people out there are so terrible, not like us. Now, that's the voice of hypocrisy, and the Scripture doesn't speak with the voice of hypocrisy. The Scripture says, and so were you. This is who you were. There before the grace of God is every single 
one of us. And this is who we are by nature, children of wrath, doing whatever we want to do under the judgment of God. And then in verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him. Seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. That is why we glory in the gospel. We were these people under the just judgment of God, under his wrath, he personally angry with us because of our rebellion and unrepentance and God acted upon us, raised us up. And Paul says here, here's the reason God did all that. Why would God be merciful to you, rebel? You shaking your fist in his face, you cursing him with the air that he gave you to breathe and the lungs that he made. Why would he be merciful? And Paul said, so that a billion years from now, you'll still be surprised at his mercy. Well, that's as good as it gets. That's glorious. And it's for everybody. We were enemies of God, helpless sinners, God-haters, but Christ died while we were in that state, while we were yet sinners. And now anyone who puts their trust in him, for any of them, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Even 1 Corinthians 6 that we read earlier, where Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor the effeminate, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. After he says that, this list of people, if they will not turn from their sin, they will go to hell. That is not the end of what he has to say. That's not the end of the story. The next words that come are some of the most beautiful in the Bible, right up there with, but God from Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what he says in verse 11 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here is the reversal of that downward spiral towards hell. God himself comes down, lifts us up, seats us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So friends, look to Jesus. Flee the wrath of God and take refuge in Jesus. There is good news. No sin is too great. No sinner too far gone. As Richard Sibbs says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. We've talked about that wicked, foolish exchange that sinners make, but the gospel tells us of another exchange, what, what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the great exchange. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. Christ in our place. And even as we see God giving up sinners, handing them over to their sin, there is another better giving up that God 
does. Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, God has great wrath towards sin in his holiness and great wrath toward unrepentant sinners, but the Son of God was given up for us in judgment. The judgment we deserved. The judgment we worked for so that that the wrath of God for our sin fell on him instead of us. Here's what that means, that it was the Son of God who did this. It, it, It means no matter what you've done, friend, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you wrestle with, if you look to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, if you call on him to save you, he will have you. He will have you. The one who comes to him, he will never cast out. That's true for us who sit in this room and hear my voice. It's true for our loved ones who we care so much about. It is true for for that angry sinner who is so wrapped up in their rebellion that they would call you awful, awful names for daring to say what the Word of God says on this topic. Oh, if they will just come. He will save them to the uttermost. They'll be His. That's our prayer. pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we, we confess that the, the topic of, of your righteous wrath is sobering. It's even frightening. I pray that by your spirit it would be increasingly so that our hearts would break for those who are lost. Lord, in this lost and dying world, that it would motivate us to be shining lights, not to lock ourselves in this building and talk about what that awful world out there is like to take this gospel to the world. Lord, I thank you that you're already beginning to do that work through us in this church. We thank you, Lord, for the the ministry that took place yesterday in, in the darkest places this world has to offer. Lord, I pray you'd make us increasingly faithful, increasingly bold, increasingly humbled by your grace to us, increasingly thankful that we would speak the truth in boldness, but we would speak the truth only in love. Lord, safeguard us from self-righteousness or judgmentalism. Cause us, Lord, to, to proclaim these truths, to call people to repentance and faith in great love, in great humility, in great awareness of the depths from which you have saved us. And I pray, God, that you would be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.